Listeners, if you love podcasts, you might not want to miss Now Hear This, a really big podcasting festival coming to the Los Angeles area this October. We'll be there for a live Dear Prudence on Saturday, October 29th. You can see me live and on stage, as well as more shows you love like The Moth, Criminal, and The Memory Palace. Altogether, there are more than 30 great podcasts live on six stages, including slate favorites like The Gist and Trumpcast. Tickets are on sale now for Now Hear This, October 28th through the 30th in Anaheim, California, just a short ride from Los Angeles. Get tickets and see the whole lineup at nowhearthisfest.com. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. Once again, and for always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, uh, also known as Mallory Ortberg, and I've got some exciting surprises for you this week in the studio. In the meantime, I'd like to address something that I've seen popping up in a lot of letters lately, which is someone will write to me and they'll say a person I know, someone in my family, someone I work with, a friend, a friend of a friend, says these things to me all the time and they really hurt my feelings. They're about my appearance or about my race or about my age or about my earning potential and they're really mean and passive aggressive and constant. It doesn't stop. And I've tried to talk about it with my boss, my partner, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my mom. And whenever I ask someone else about it, they always say, well, they don't really mean it. And I find that excuse so interesting because the question is, why is this person always saying this mean thing about me over and over again? And the answer is, they don't mean the thing they keep saying which we don't act like that in any other part of our lives. If someone keeps talking about a trip they're really excited to take to Seville, uh, people don't say, well, obviously, Brendan is never going to Seville. He's just saying he'd like to go to Seville. Uh, Like, we live in a society where, you know, by common consent, we assume that language means the things we we want it to mean. Um, So while someone might occasionally have a slip of the tongue, Uh, or as a one-off say something and then later apologize and say, I didn't really mean that, I just wanted to hurt you, or I was confused or mistaken. But if someone repeatedly says things over and over again, you can generally take it for granted that they're saying it because they mean it. Uh, So if you ask someone, why does Trevington always say that I'm a bad person? And they say they don't mean it. Um, He does. He does mean that you're a bad person, and you get to talk about it. Uh, It makes no sense to try to dismiss a complaint by saying someone doesn't mean the thing they say on purpose over and over again. People generally mean the things they say, especially when they say it repeatedly. So that's just a little general advice from me to you. Uh, And with that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to the very special guest we have in studio with us today, uh, Laura Turner. Uh, Some special facts about Laura Turner are that I have lived with her my whole life. Uh, We have the same father, we have the same mother, and we have the same brother. She's my sister, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome her to the studio. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm trying to think of if there's anything else that I need to let the audience at home know about you. 
Um, I can help you out on that score. Um, please uh, enlighten us. Uh, I think the most important thing they need to know is that when I was 10 years old, mm-hmm. I was building a snow fort in the middle of the cul-de-sac. Oh, yeah. Okay. At least. And um, my neighbor, Alex, this Ukrainian boy who lived next door to us, was kind of the object of my affection. And I had built this snow fort hoping that he would come out and we could play together. And I was envisioning this very, like, serendipity, romantic comedy. I don't think I ever knew, by the way, that you built the snow fort with the object of, like, attracting him. Would it have changed your actions? Because then, dear reader, she crushed it. I, yeah, I don't remember why, but we got in a fight and I went out after you had gone to bed and I smashed your whole snow fort. It smashed good. Uh, I never did marry Alex, though. I destroyed your fortress of solitude. No, mm-hmm. I had no idea. I thought it was just this snow fort you had built for yourself. And now I'm disappointed to learn that it was all to ensnare a boy. Yeah, it was. I it think was. less of you. Well, things turned out for the best. For I would all destroy of us. it again if I had the chance. Jeez. Um, something that you should know about Laura uh, is that she routinely attempted to scare my younger brother uh, and me by <laughs> if our parents were coming home late, she would like come downstairs and say, guys, I just found a note from mom that says she's leaving us. She just doesn't ever want to come home. And we'd like look at this little post-it and what was clearly Laura's handwriting that just said, John, I don't love you or the children anymore. Goodbye. And we think that's probably not mom. It doesn't sound like her. But what if it is? Um, and we would worry until I she came home. I had a career in trolling early in life before Twitter even existed. We clearly both trolled the shit out of one of them. Mm-hmm. It worked out well. Trolling can build relationships, I think, <laughs> is the moral of the story. Um, so in that vein, uh, let's start with our first letter, the subject line of which is texting the news that a loved one has died. Mm, not a good way to start. All right. Please don't interrupt me while I read this letter. Oh, fine. Dear Prudence. I found out that my great-grandmother died from my half-sister tagging me in a group photo with her and the words R.I.P. in the caption. About two years ago, my father, who I never knew growing up and with whom I'm on a friendly but not close basis, texted me, Your grandmother has a brain tumor. It looks like she's going to die soon. She lived for another year and a half, and my aunt called me when she passed. But shortly thereafter, my half-sister texted me to let me know my grandmother was dead. I'm thinking about this now because I spoke to a client today whose mother passed away and who found out via text message. So I'm clearly not the only one who's found out about a loved one's passing in this way. I'm hoping you could help me come up with a sensitive way to explain to my father and half-sister that I really need to be called when a loved one passes, even though we don't have regular conversations and our communication is tenuous. I understand that it's a difficult conversation to have, and even more so when you have to call someone you're not very close with. Finding out about a serious illness or death of a loved one from a text message is extremely hurtful and devastating to me. Sadly, we have other loved ones who are aging, and this behavior seems doomed to repeat itself. Yikes. Well, the first thing I want to say is if you are someone in possession of the knowledge that a close family member is about to die and you are communicating that information, uh, don't do it in a text message if you can avoid that option. It is um, tempting to do so, and it can seem expedient, but expedience may not be the priority in a case like this. So if you're on that side of things, you might want to think twice about making a phone call. Yeah. Uh, I think it's especially rough uh, to find out someone has passed by finding that you have been tagged in a group photograph with them that says RIP. Yeah. That's that's harsh. That is a, a way you couldn't find out, in fact, until recently. So this is one of those cases in which technology is not doing us any favors. But it's also, I think, a good idea to think about if there are other people in your family who you might be able to communicate with about something like this. Is there 
another sibling, uh, an uncle, an aunt who handles this news or communicates um, in a way that you recognize is helpful, that you could ask, hey, in the future, can you keep a heads up for me in this kind of situation? Mm -hmm. But I do think if this is something that you would want specifically from your half-sister and your father, this will require you to make a call. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you cannot text them this request. Like, you have to make it clear that you are willing to pick up the phone and have the occasional challenging conversation and just say, you know, you can have a brief, like, how you doing? Hey, I just wanted to say, I know that when the last two people in the family died, you texted me. And I would just love to ask if you could call me, just because sometimes that's hard news to receive over text. And be prepared. They might say, oh, I'll try. Uh, and then they might text you anyways. Um, I think it's a totally fair request to make. It might not be a something that you would want to pursue a fight about if they did not honor your request, especially since you're not really close. Like, make the ask, but then if they don't do it in the future, this might be something you have to live with, especially since you're not close with one another um, and you're not interested in starting a fight with that because yeah, that could be really... That would not be a pleasant fight. Not the fights are pleasant, but that would be a difficult thing to get into an argument about. And I think I remember uh, finding out about a friend of mine when I was younger who died via text message. And um, that was awful and sad. But I think partly what I needed to realize is that the people who were in the position of sharing that news had a lot on their plates. They didn't do the best job they could. And it's well worth having this conversation. But um, in whatever way is appropriate, try to have some empathy for their position, too. That's really true, because nobody who is, like, responsible for disseminating the information that someone is dead is, like, having a great time. No, it's not a good task. They're probably feeling emotional. They might not feel up to making a call. So, again, it's a totally fair request for you to make. I think it's better to call whenever possible. But, but do also try to extend them a little empathy, because that's, you know, it's presumably hard to call someone you're semi-estranged from and say, like, someone we love has just died. But yeah, try not to tag group photograph. That's rough. Yeah, that's yeah. um. Let's draw the line there. Maybe just don't use Facebook. Yeah, don't use Facebook for important end of life announcements. Yeah, I can't imagine finding out someone I cared about died over Facebook. No, that, that would, would just be, be real hard. Really rough. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, and and hopefully in the future when people you love die, you'll be able to find out via phone. Yeah, but we I, hope. You I'm sorry been... that that's like my wish for you, but. Yeah. All right. Which brings us to the next letter, which is sort of the opposite problem. There's too many people who are alive. Wow. That's not the problem <laughs> at all. The world. That's not the problem. Too I many people. misrepresented the problem at hand. Uh, it's just about having to take care of a lot of children, which I think of as the sort of opposite of losing elderly relatives. In a way. Anyhow. Let's In just, a world. Let's just get to the letter. Uh, dear Prudence, my husband and I bought a house a year ago, and he's finishing up his master's this year. I've been promoted at work which means a nice bump in pay and a whole lot more vacation time. Everything has fallen nicely into place. I wish this was the end of the letter. Oh, this was such a hard one. It is not. No. Uh, we have started talking about trying to get pregnant in the near future. Then we were contacted by CPS. My husband's youngest sister is facing drug and child neglect charges. The landlord called the cops after serving an eviction notice for failure to pay rent. Her children had been left alone for more than a week in the house with only the 13-year-old watching them. According to the cops, my sister-in-law had repeatedly left them alone during the entire summer. None of the neighbors noticed those kids living alone for days at a time with no adult in sight. We live an hour and a half away, which was closer than any other relatives, so we've taken them all in. We're now scrambling to get them enrolled in school and make sure they're taken care of. Now there are five children, aged 3 to 13, living with us now. 
This has been a nightmare for everyone involved. Honestly, I find myself driving home from work taking the long way because it's the only time I get any peace. Home is nothing but stress, noise, and destruction. My eight-year-old nephew puts holes in the walls, and his younger brother has tantrums that last for hours. My husband keeps telling me that this will pass, but that's a bald-faced lie. My sister-in-law is facing felony drug charges. Realistically, she's going to be locked up for more than a few years. His family has made comments about wanting to keep the kids together. My in-laws live five hours south of us, and the rest live out of state. I can't take on five children permanently. I don't want to. I feel resentful and bitter that the future I have worked so hard for has been stolen. Then I feel ashamed and guilty. My nieces and nephews have been through hell. I have only spoken to my parents about this. I feel trapped. If it was only the two older girls, or just the toddler, I wouldn't hesitate to keep them. But I can't take all five in. How do I start this conversation with my husband? Oh, girl. How I long for the days of I would like a phone call when someone dies. Don't tell me over Facebook. Oh, man. I I feel so much sympathy for this woman. Gosh, absolutely. And one of the things that I wanted to say is taking the long road home after work is totally acceptable right now. Keep doing it. Yeah, if that's your outlet, like that is healthy and doesn't hurt anyone. I do it sometimes when I just have to go home to my husband and my dog. So go for it. I do it sometimes too. And I don't even have anything. Yeah. That's not true. I have a dog. You have nothing. I have not. I don't even have friends. Nothing. I just live in a vacuum. It's very sad. And I still try to avoid it. Um. Yeah. No, like that is a healthy coping strategy that totally. you've got going on. So don't don't beat yourself up for that. The emotional, I mean, every dynamic in this is so complicated. Emotional, logistically, physically, like where, you know, where are they all staying? I just, it just sounds so difficult. So I, the first thing I would say is give yourself a lot of grace or patience or whatever you think you need right now. Um, You're not in a situation that's going to resolve overnight and you're not in a situation that's going to resolve with a silver bullet. There are going to be a lot of hard conversations to have in the next few weeks for you and your family. Yeah. And I, one thing I really appreciate that this letter writer says is like she obviously is discussing the things that are really hard for her, but she also acknowledges like these kids have been through hell mm-hmm. and like she's aware. And that just makes me reassured like you are clearly like a nurturing and an understanding and an empathetic person that you can acknowledge. Like, you know that this eight year old is not putting walls. Or I'm sorry, holes in your walls because he's a jerk. He's doing it because he's traumatized and he has no better way of expressing how he feels. Yeah, and, absolutely. And yeah. to think of, yeah, what that eight-year-old has gone through is is heartbreaking. And you are clearly someone who can understand that and empathize with it. And at the same time, recognize that doesn't mean that you need to take on responsibility for these five kids. Right. I mean, I think... I think you, you're you absolutely right that you do need to start this conversation with your husband because he might just be in this mode right now of like, this is my sister. She's going to go to jail. My only job is to like keep her kids together, step up. I don't have the option of doing anything else. And you absolutely need to have a conversation with him that's just really honest, that leaves all your options on the table and just lets him know like what you are and are not capable of because you do have options. Like because this looks like it's going to be a long term plan, like if you guys talk about what would it look like if for a while, like one of our other relatives took in a couple of the kids, um, not forever, not let's split up the family, but like, would it be an option for a few months at a time for them to take one of the kids, maybe one of the kids who seems like they're doing well or one of the kids who they can kind of have the most rapport with to just like help help you not feel like you're going to go bananas? Yeah. I think one of the most hard positions in life is to be 
in a space where you feel like your back's up against the wall and there's nothing you can do. Like right. there's no other way out. And in this situation, I'm sure you feel that intensely and you do have options. Mm-hmm. You could talk with your other relatives who live far away and say what Mallory suggested for a month at a time. Can you look into helping out with the kids? You can have them come stay with you somewhere nearby and have the kids stay with them. You can talk with your parents about helping out and pitching in. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you probably need to revisit with your husband. What is your little family look like the two of you your new house your plans for having kids is are those plans you can put on hold for now do you feel okay about that are those plans you want to get going on you need to not lose sight in the middle of this of what it is that you two have built together and what you're hoping for the future and you have to look at that in in conjunction with your situation now yeah and i think you got to call a big family meeting yeah. Like with the in-laws who live five hours south of you and the family that's out of state. And maybe that's going to be a meeting that takes takes place partly over the phone. But like you need to all be either physically in the same room or on the phone saying like, what can everyone do? What's the most everyone can can commit? Um, and what are our options? Because I think one thing that would be a, a really bad outcome would be because they all live further away and you're the closest and the kids live with you now for everyone else to say, well, the problem's taken care of. You guys can just handle this, right? And for you to feel like you're going crazy and like you're way in over your head and you're resentful and you're guilty and you're anguished. Like y- you need to like have a really big, open, honest family conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's possible like your fa- your in-laws live five hours south of you, like kids can move five hours. If, if if to the rest of the family, it's like, no, our kids have to stay together. Then like ask them if they're willing to open their home to five children. Yeah. Yeah. The situation here is not such that the only option is to keep the five kids together under your roof. That would be, you would be superhuman, I think, if you were able overnight to welcome in, you know, your five nieces and nephews to live with you for an indefinite period of time. And I would also recommend... If your sister-in-law has an attorney or someone who's walking her through this process, just be in touch with them regularly. Mm. Get get the best information you can on what she's doing and um, what realistically her situation looks like. It may not be that she's going to be out soon, but if she can have contact with her kids, if other members of your family can facilitate that so they don't lose the relationship they have with their mom you know, that's going to be part of the equation for these five kids, too. Right. And I think another thing that you should do absolutely in the short term is, like, get therapy for these kids. Yeah. Because these children have been, at best, neglected repeatedly. Yeah. Um, there's possibly way more going on than you're aware of. Like, clearly, they are dealing with stress and trauma that they cannot process in, like, appropriate ways. And they need a lot of help. And they need to be in therapy, like, probably for a while. Yeah. Um, And look into like local. I know there are like court appointed special advocate programs. There are places where you can get resources for little to no money with your count, your local county, most likely. So check into local options for places that aren't going to be private therapy as well. Right. Right. And for people who are used to like like for people who are used to helping people who are taking in family members, like this is something that happens often when people are imprisoned. Like you are not alone. You are not the first person who is like unexpectedly had to take in children. And like I would just, yeah, find out every resource that you can get um, and make sure that you're getting therapy too. Yeah. I think that's a non-negotiable. It might feel like on top of everything else, another thing to do. But like you need somewhere safe that you can express resentment of these kids because you can't do that to them. They are children who did not ask to be put in this situation. But 
you need to have some place where you can go and say, I feel overwhelmed. I can't do this. I resent an eight-year-old. I resent a five-year-old. I want my old life back. And to figure out ways to deal with that and, and ways to find the best possible outcome for all of you guys. Yeah. And back to sort of the question at the very end of your letter, how do you start the conversation with your husband? I think the sooner the better mm-hmm. and with a lot of understanding for the position he's in. But don't make any assumptions. Don't think he's going to want to have them forever. He needs to do this. Just ask him, honestly, what does he want and what is he prepared to do? And then talk with him about what you're prepared to do. Even if those are two very different things, mm-hmm. you've got to start somewhere. You can't wait until you think you're both on the same page. This right. is way too important. And this is a conversation to have before that sort of big family meeting so that the two of you mm-hmm. can go in at least with the information about what the other one wants. Because um, it may be that your husband also feels similarly and uh, or, or or at least more similar than similarly than you thought. And like it will help to be very, very honest with one another about what you can and can't do. Yeah. But man, keep taking that long road home. Yeah. Get Billy Joel or Celine Dion or whoever does it for you and just do what you need to do on that drive home. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure that every day you have at least a couple of minutes to yourself because yeah. you um, you have a lot of responsibilities right now that you did not expect would be coming your way. And yeah. You take and care of yourself. burnout is a real possibility for you real fast down this road. So the small things you can do to um, get a moment of silence are going to be are going to be good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Laura, I'm going to have you read this next one. All right. The subject of this letter is a writer's block. And the letter writer says, I guess this issue is twofold. Number one, Stella and I have known each other since we were 14. We are best friends, yaya sisterhood style. We have been through everything together. We speak our own language, traveled to strange cities, watched sunrises, helped each other break up with dumb boyfriends. Number two, I am now a nearly 30-year-old writer-filmmaker. Stella and I grew up both dreaming of becoming working writers. We workshopped each other's projects all through undergrad and onward. We celebrated successes, and we drank wine and burned rejection letters. After college, she opted to stay in academics, where she remains as a PhD candidate. I went straight into the workforce and began publishing. Last year, my first film was optioned and released by a major production house. Everyone in my professional and personal life has been amazingly supportive, and I found this past year to be incredibly positive. The only thorn in my side is Stella. She won't mention anything about it. Her husband came to screenings, but she acts as though it doesn't exist. I don't need the validation, and I'm not angry. I don't care if she hasn't seen it. I don't care if she saw the movie and hated it. That's something we'd be able to laugh at together. What I do feel is that it's a curious omission, and it is driving a bizarre wedge between what was once a magical and unbreakable friendship. With anyone else in my life, I wouldn't really think about it, but I am as fixed on this, I am fixed on this since we have always supported each other in our dreams of working as creatives. My fiancé says to talk to her, but I need Prudy's outside perspective. I don't want to scold her. I just want to understand if her silence is deliberate or if she is dealing with her own fears right now. Other than this gorilla-sized DVD in the room, our relationship is totally great and there is no other notable tension. I don't want to look up one day and realize we aren't friends anymore because I didn't have the courage to bring up something so silly and wholly unrelated to all we have been through together. Bro. Bro. Bro, just bring it up. Do it. This is going to be a five-minute conversation. This isn't silly. And your friendship probably wasn't magical. I think in some ways it sounds like the letter writer might have expectations that their friendship 
will always continue to be this magically sort of supportive, perfect gem of a friendship, free and nothing from insecurity will and jealousy. Rock the boat, yeah. Especially if you've chosen to go down similar creative paths. Sometimes friendships get competitive, and that sucks. And it shouldn't be the case. But you're never going to be able to have an honest friendship if you don't talk about it. Yeah, I mean, if you think that this friendship is unbreakable. Then it can definitely survive a conversation uh, where you say, hey, last year I had a movie come out and we've never discussed it. That makes me feel weird. And then she would say, oh, right. I felt a little jealous and I feel weird that I haven't talked to you about it. Right. I, I like, Or she'll say, I don't want to talk about it. And you'll figure out how to respond to that. Or yeah. she'll say, I've, I, I haven't known how to say this. I saw it and I didn't like it. And totally. like you said, you guys can laugh about it. Like that moment in 30 Rock where Liz flashes back and oh, realizes yes. that she's always been negging Jenna's performances without realizing it. Um, like, the lighting was so good. Ethan and I both thought the programs were really easy to read. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this is just a conversation where, like, you have all the power to fix your situation. Open your mouth. Yeah. Like, find the courage. Do whatever you have to do. Like, play the Rocky theme song. Pump yourself up. Uh, and then just, like... Go see your friend and say, hey, I had a movie come out last year. We've never discussed it. It makes me feel weird. I would rather know that you like didn't like it or were uncomfortable with me or were mad at me about something or whatever than just feel like this was some you know, topic we could not talk about. Totally. And in the future, considering that you guys have both achieved some level of success early on in your careers, this is probably only going to become more of an issue, whether you do other movies or she publishes something really prestigious in her academic world. Right. It's going to be really fantastic to have a friend who will be happy with you. So even if she's happy and doesn't like your movie or doesn't want to see it, that's going to be really different than just not talking about it right. and making you wonder What's up? I mean, yeah, maybe you'll talk to her and she'll say, yeah, you know, I never knew how to bring it up. I've lately felt like you never asked me how my work is going. Mm -hmm. So it made me not want to ask you. And then you guys can, like, be vulnerable together and say, ah, we, like, haven't been taking as good enough care of each other as we wanted to. But totally, literally the only way you're going to get any information is by just saying it. And, like, you can acknowledge that you feel a little silly about it. You can say, this is not a huge deal. I care about you way yeah. more than some stupid movie that I made not that it's stupid, uh, but no, just like you're so much more important to me. But I want to be able to have this conversation. One thing that's um, kind of silly that my husband and I actually do in conflict is um, we'll use a, a rating system, like one through ten. And uh, it's it feels really goofy to say and oddly formal. But if I'll, I'm bringing up like, hey, this is like a three, but the last three weeks you said you take the trash out and it hasn't been done and I've done it. Yeah. Um, and it makes me feel... A little bit like uh, I'm responsible for everything around the house. So I don't know if maybe that's not helpful. But if it is, this doesn't have to be let's sit down and have a capital S serious discussion. It can just be, hey, this is a three or four, but I'm feeling a little sad about not having acknowledged this big part of my life. Let's talk about that. Right. And I think the longer you wait, the, mo the higher up the scale it's going to go. Because it's clear that she's not going to bring it up. She's fine with the silence or at least willing to pretend to be fine with the silence. And you're going to feel way weirder if 10 years from now you're like, we never talked about this and it's been a decade. There are, you know, yeah, yeah. Talk about it now. Talk about it now. Just open your mouth and say, we've never talked about my movie and that makes me a little bit sad. Can we talk about it? Talk about it now is a good tattoo to get if you're looking for one. Or just write it down, frankly. No, tattoo it on your skin. Sure. Yeah, and one of the things, um, this is some patented family advice, TM, 
from Nancy Ortberg, mother of both of us. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that she taught us was you have to sometimes give people permission to say things imperfectly and hear what they have to say. So your friend might say something that is hard for you to hear. She might say something that sounds difficult or, um, you know, you, you can let her say what she needs to say without saying it perfectly and then make the decision okay, do we need to have a follow-up conversation? Yeah. Is that hard enough that we need to keep going? Or was that perfectly understandable and A-okay for me in the friendship? But listen to her, hear what she has to say, because it sounds like you have a history here of a really kind and loving, supportive, fun friend. Yeah, I think your friendship can handle this. Definitely. And I think you can do it. I have every faith in your ability to have this conversation. If your friendship was a hammock and this was a person getting on it, it would not fall off the tree. That's a beautiful image, Laura. Thank you. Thank you. Support. Anytime. Uh, All right. I'm going to read the next letter, which uh, is my daughter is my smoking companion. I. Oh, yeah. This is about cigarettes. I wanted to clarify before I started because I wasn't sure. Sometimes people just say smokes when they mean pot and I never know which one. Like Kyle Mooney. Like Kyle Mooney. But this one is they say cigarettes. So it's about cigarettes. Dear Prudence, my 18 year old daughter recently admitted to me that she smokes. For her sake, I was disappointed. But. I was happy to have someone to smoke with. We've smoked together for a few weeks now, and it's been companionable. The other day, she asked me for a cigarette since hers were gone. I gave her a whole pack. My husband found out, and he said I was making it easier for our daughter to smoke. I got defensive, but now I have a terrible feeling that he was right. I definitely won't restock her cigarette supply again, but I suppose that I would give her one cigarette if she asked. Do you think that could worsen her habit? In my heart, I want my daughter to quit before she's totally addicted, but I really enjoy smoking with her. Oh, buddy. Yeah. This is this is a conversation that I think you already know exactly how to have and you don't want to. I also would like to point out that step one should be to apologize to your husband. Yeah. Because you say you got defensive, but now you think that he was right, which means that the next step is not make some quiet internal decision about how many cigarettes you're going to give your daughter, but go to your husband and say, hey, I'm really sorry I got so defensive. You were right and I was wrong. Which are hard words to say, but I think you'll feel a lot better once you do. Apologies are great. They're not everything, but they're great. And you know that you reacted badly to his, like, pretty reasonable suggestion. Um, Yeah. So in this situation, too, there's something that um, a dynamic where you as the letter writer and the mom are still this girl's mom. And, you know, you say that you say you feel disappointed for her sake, but the sentence doesn't end there. You are happy to have someone to smoke with. Um, it's understandable to be happy to have someone to smoke with. But when you are the parent, one of your jobs, even as the kids get older, is to look out for them and love them and care for them. And this is something that's damaging for both of you. Um, it's not the end of the world. It's not the worst thing ever. You're not the worst mom ever. So you don't need to go down the ro- road of of feeling overly guilty. But when your daughter comes to you and says that she's smoking cigarettes regularly, um, it would be great to encourage her gently not to smoke, and even better if it could come from a mom who doesn't smoke. It's also really telling that your daughter asked you for one cigarette and you gave her a whole pack. Yeah. Like, there's a dynamic there that I think is a little bit, um, I think you're lying to yourself a little bit more than you think you are, um, which is way more than you want your daughter to quit. You want her to be your smoking buddy. Like, you gave your daughter a pack when she asked for one. Um, and then you ask later, do you think that could worsen her habit? Yeah. The only thing that worsens smoking is smoking. Um, and by giving someone a packet, 
of cigarettes when they asked for one, like by definition, you are encouraging them to ramp up. So I think another thing you have to do is be super honest with yourself and admit like there is a part of me that's really strong that wants my daughter to be my smoking buddy. Makes me feel close to her. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel like I'm not alone. It makes me feel like fill in the blank, figure out what it is that it makes you feel and then ask yourself, is this worth helping my daughter become a lifelong smoker? Yeah. And I think that you say at the end of the letter, you don't want your daughter to get addicted. uh, But it's entirely likely that she already is. I mean, she's at an age where she's making decisions for herself as an adult at 18. And she's coming to you for cigarettes. And part of her must know at some level that you are happy about this. I mean, this is like the old commercial, right? Like, I learned it from watching you. Totally. She probably learned it from watching you. Yeah. And again, like going down the road of beating yourself up isn't necessarily something that's going to be helpful right here. But this could be a really good opportunity for you as a mom, as Mallory said, to be really honest with yourself Mm -hmm. and to think about what are the ways that you've shown your daughter, not just that smoking is okay, but that the way she gets to closeness with you is to do the things that you like to do. Right. Like, find another way to be companionable with your daughter. Totally. There are lots more appropriate ways, lots more fun ways. Yep. Go to movies. Or just, like, you can just sit outside with her and talk. Yeah. I, I think you you do need to, I mean, like, I would encourage you to try quitting. I believe me, I know how hard quitting is. I think part of what made me want to read this letter with you is like, you know, as you know, like I started smoking cigarettes when I was 16. I do know that. And uh, I've quit many times in my life, often Mm -hmm. for long stretches at a time, sometimes for years. And like one of the things that I have noticed is whenever I pick it back up, I smoke a lot more than I did the last time around. Mm -hmm. And I don't like that. Like that really scares me. Um, Yeah. And I would imagine it, like you said, it only gets easier the more you smoke. You know, a a habit begets a habit. Yep. No, and I also totally understand, like, if I'm in the process of quitting and I'm with a friend who smokes a lot and Mm -hmm. they offer me a cigarette, it's so easy to say yes. It is fun. It is sociable. Like, you you do meet great people smoking cigarettes Um, a lot of the time. You have great conversations. But... um, so like I, I I get that I really really do and and like uh, I yesterday was my first day without a cigarette and today's day two yeah and it's rough I get it and especially if somebody I wanted to be closer with mm-hmm. said do you want a cigarette or can I have a cigarette I would be re- it would be really hard to say no and I understand that like when you're addicted to smoking sometimes you make decisions that you think that's not what I want to be that's not the kind of person I want to be but it's so hard to say no so like I extend to you a lot of sympathy but I really really like. I just feel really strongly like I would feel so uncomfortable if like a young person, especially a child, was like asking me for cigarettes. Like I couldn't. Yeah. I that's think not that's a path you should go down. Important here that she's 18. She's just starting, it sounds like. And right now, the the encouragement that you're giving her could spark and lead to mm-hmm. a years long or lifelong addiction on her part. And I do want to say one thing that I think is really great here is that you've got an 18 year old daughter who likes to spend time with you. And that's not always the case. Yeah. So take that while you're thinking about all of this and kind of getting really, really honest with yourself about your motivations and um, think about the ways that you can have her as a companion that might not involve smoking, whether yeah. it's doing something together or just hanging out and having a conversation outside, enjoying her company. That's not something every mom gets when they have an 18-year-old daughter. And that's that's really great. You're doing something right in all of this. So 
find out what that is too and keep that up. Yeah. And I think just my final note uh, on this is just that like smoking limits your options. Not always immediately, mm-hmm. um, but over time, it limits your options. It can limit your options by harming your health. It can limit your options like you get a lot of head colds. It can limit your options like you can't go a certain amount of time without a cigarette. Um, and like over time, it can limit your options by making you die like 20, 25 years earlier than yeah. you might have. And like as a parent, it is your job to give your child as many options as possible, mm-hmm. especially at 18. Yeah. Like don't don't give her a pack of cigarettes no nope. like you don't need to do it do not do not like chain her to that same like monkey that you're chained to right now like that's not oh yeah don't don't give her that like i very much would love to like go back in time to the 16 year old who was like this is fine and casual and be like no it's gonna get so much harder yeah like it just gets harder every time i thought i was so good at quitting smoking when i quit for the first time at 22 Mm -hmm. and then i quit again at 24 and then again at 26 and then again at 27 and like yeah it gets harder every time that Um, totally makes sense any habit that you get into more and more as time goes on it gets harder it's just difficult and sad and awful and you are her mom and you love her so much yeah. and you want her to have a good and long life. So don't let this be about you getting the companionship that you want from your daughter by trading her yeah. a pack of cigarettes for an hour together. That's not worth it. And no. I think you know that. Yep. I think you do, too. I think you do, too. And I have a lot of hope for you uh, that you can make better choices. Um, I know it will be difficult. Um, I encourage you to enlist your husband's support. It sounds Absolutely. like he is like trying to make you be your best self. And I think if you apologize to him and ask for his help, say like, I'm so sorry, I don't want to do this. I love our daughter. I love you. Thank you for looking out for me. Can you help me? Um, And like, yeah, yeah. Uh, At the bare minimum, do not give your daughter more cigarettes. Um, Beyond that, I would say, uh, if you are going to continue to smoke, don't smoke with her. Mm -mm. Um, because I think that will just make it easier over time to give her cigarettes again. Um, And I would also encourage you to look into ways uh, to quit because it's it's good to quit smoking cigarettes. Yeah, and you're not in it alone. It sounds like your husband is maybe someone who can help you with this. Talk to friends who have done it. Um, Look up resources online if that's something you're interested in. I think you can do this. Yep. All right. Uh, We got one more. And uh, I think that you should read this one. I think I shall. I think that will be great. The subject of this one is open up communication or overcome the guilt. I grew up in a family of proud, manipulative, controlling, and highly temperamental people. A family where mean teasing was acceptable, the kind of teasing where they'd say all the things they hate about you, but say it in a joking way in order for it to seem like they were kidding. It only got worse as I got engaged and then married. I no longer fit in their box, and the happier and more independent my husband and I became, the more jealous they became of our relationship. We tried to set healthy boundaries with my family, but things only got worse. They tried to control us through manipulating and yelling until their behavior became so extreme that the only option was to discontinue contact with them. They were unwilling to meet us halfway on our boundaries and expectations, even refusing to go to counseling, saying that it wouldn't fix anything, and that we needed to forgive and move on. It has been a year now since we've seen or spoken with my family, and my husband and I are so much happier without them in our life. But we are now expecting our first child, and I find myself feeling guilty that we no longer talk to my family. I have been told from friends and extended family who still see them that they are very sad they won't get to see our baby. Should we consider reopening communication with them, even though they have not expressed any desire to change their behaviors? How can I overcome the guilt of refusing contact with them, especially now that I'm not letting them see their grandchild, 
in addition to not seeing me and my husband. Well, my first piece of advice to these people is just don't smoke. Yeah, don't Don't, smoke. don't give your baby cigarettes. Don't tell anyone about death on Facebook. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, You're doing is, good. Thanks, thanks. This is a, this is a big one. Yeah, this this is a large, like, knotted yarn ball of family dynamics. And I always also, too, feel a little, whenever I get questions about reopening contact with family members, I always feel a little bad because I, I have never had to, like, cut off a family member. Like, that's not so something far. I have so far. You know, watch it. You Obviously, like, I've had periods where things were really strained, especially with, like, um, close family members, mm-hmm. and I've certainly um, like had family members that I drift apart from over time. Like, but I've I've never had someone where like I tried to go to therapy and and I tried to do all these other things and then said I can't have you in my life. Yeah. So I always feel a little reluctant to encourage someone to do that because that seems like a really drastic step. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, you're the only person who knows what the best thing is going to be for your family. You are the one who has had to go through. What sounds like some really humiliating behavior um, and then no apology or desire to change. And that sounds really difficult. I mean, I think I've certainly experienced this with both friends and family members, that kind of teasing that is pretty mean-spirited but but has plausible deniability. So you can go back to someone and they can say, I was just joking. And it looks like you're the one who's in the wrong because you don't get the joke. You're not funny. And that's just not any way to have a good adult relationship. So from the beginning, I get very much why you cut contact off with them. Especially, it's especially just like sinister that they pointed out the happier I became, the yeah. more unhappy they got. I mean, that's that's a pretty good reason to cut somebody out of your life if if they like ramp up the yelling and the manipulation because they see you being happy in your life. Absolutely. And now that you have a baby coming along, which congratulations, Um, I can certainly understand why you would feel both more protective of your family and have more of a desire to involve your your family of origin in your life now. Mm -hmm. But I think the important thing to remember is that they do have the option of seeing your baby. They could take stock of the ways that they've hurt you. They could apologize. Mm -hmm. They could offer to go to therapy and they could ask you what they could do to make things right. Um, I think something that a lot of times is easy to forget is that regardless of whether or not someone is related to you, the baseline for having a relationship with anyone is that like in general, are you capable of having conversations where you don't scream at me, where you don't say abusive things to me, where you don't try to harm me physically or emotionally, um, and where you are capable of receiving criticism in like a spirit of love and respect. And if someone can't do those things, Regardless of how related you are, it is really appropriate to say, like, I I need you to meet these baselines in order to have a relationship. And that's not you being demanding. That's not you cutting someone off from the people they have a right to see. That's asking for just really basic self-determination before you will, like, speak with someone. Absolutely. And I think a question to ask yourself now is, are there terms on which I would be happy to see my family Or would every potential meeting be preceded by fear, by nerves, um, and by a sense of dread? Hmm. And if there are times, like if you were to say, you know, once the baby's born and we're back at home, we can have everyone over and or not even in your home, but go to a coffee shop, meet them all for an hour. 
um, and then leave if you're in a controlled situation, you know, to start to think creatively about if you do have a deep desire for a family to see your baby, um, at least to say, hello, I'm I'm your grandfather. Nice to meet you. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you don't want them in your life on a daily basis, there are ways to do that. There are plenty of ways that you can make that happen without reopening the kind of relationship that created these these wounds in the first place. Right, right. I think that that's a really good point, that it may be possible to have an arm's length relationship mm-hmm. where, like, they're not coming over to babysit. You're not inviting them to come to the delivery room. They're not, like, Meemaw and Papa, But uh, you can meet up with them a couple of times a year and have lunch and, like, let them hold the baby and see how they handle that. Like, if they respond to an overture like that uh, with just, it's all or nothing, we demand to see our grandbaby, you've been a monster keeping yourself away from us all this time, and, like, we are just going to insert ourselves into your life and cause a lot more pain and wreckage, um, that's a pretty telltale sign that they will not be loving grandparents. Yeah. And one of the things I recognize in your letter is something that I have dealt with a lot, which is anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think that anxiety is really a lot of it is at the intersection of powerlessness and uncertainty. And it sounds like you are living at that intersection right now. Like you are uncertain about how your family is going to treat you and your baby. And you feel powerless. You feel like you need to make sure that their behavior is going to be along certain lines. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you feel guilt. You've said you feel guilt for not letting them see their grandchild. And one of the best things you can do with anxiety is just look at the facts. Look at the history that you have at what's happened with your family that you've detailed for us, you know, pretty well here. They've been um, verbally manipulative and mean-spirited. They, when you were happier and more independent, tried to pull you back down into sadness Those aren't things that make loving grandparents. And you have all the control in the world over how you get to raise your child, at least in the very beginning. And then I hear after time you lose that. But at first, you have a lot of control and power in this situation. So think about that. And as much as you can, hold on to that knowledge that this is not out of your hands at all. Right, right. There's no way that they can say, like... Regardless of what you want, we get to see we have some sort of legal right that supersedes your desires to be with your baby once a week. Yeah. And I think for you to think, what would be something that I could handle? And maybe it's uh, like light lunch a couple months after the baby is born. And maybe you could consider offering that to them. And if their response is like somewhat receptive, if they're like, yeah, we'd really like that, um, give it a shot. And if they just kind of go ballistic, if they use that as an opportunity to like yell at you about all the things that they are mad they haven't gotten to yell at you about over the last year, then you get to say, okay, if you can't have a civil conversation with me, you know, I don't want you around my kid. Um, So I think you can kind of test the boundaries with them by offering something low stakes. Yeah. Um, And if they are not able to accept that, then I think you know that you probably made the right choice in in cutting off contact with them. Yeah, absolutely. Because the addition of a new child into the family should be a time of a lot of generosity of spirit, of time, and of uh, letting the mother and especially the parents really enjoy themselves and kind of call the shots and make the terms. And right. if they can't give that to you it, at this very vulnerable and demanding time of your life, then it may be that the best circumstance is the one that you've already got in place. Right. Um, 
One other thing I can think of is sometimes these kind of mean teasing dynamics get worse and worse when there's a group situation. Hmm. So if you feel like it would be better to have, say, just your parents at a lunch or just your siblings or one-on-one, know that that's always an option as well um, so that you don't get everyone trying to one-up each other around the dinner table. That's a really good point. Yeah, you don't need to be outnumbered. Um, yeah, and good luck. And and I hope that you are able to just, like, watch that dynamic disappear with you and your kid, like that you can break that yeah. cycle and that you can be supportive and loving. Obviously not like a perfect, flawless parent, but someone who in general doesn't yell and manipulate and, like, unleash a stream of invective disguised as a joke. That would be that would be great. Yeah. So like congratulations already for recognizing that dynamic and trying to change it. Yeah. We think you're going to be a good parent. We do. We do. Um, Laura, I feel like we have just like fixed everyone's problems. Um, Well, you know, I think we're pretty good at this. Uh It's in our DNA. I'm sorry that I destroyed your snow fort and your chances with Alex. Thank you. And Alex, wherever you are, um, you know, call me. That's. This is inappropriate. <laughs> Don't call me. I'm happily married. Yeah, yeah. But I hope you're doing great. I do too. Oh, oh, Laura, you <gasps> might want to stay for my uh, closing riff. I do. Well, what is it about? Have you finished Stranger Things yet? Yes, I finished it last night. Okay, these are not going to be heavy spoilers. These okay. are light to moderate spoilers about relationships. So uh, if you don't want spoilers on Stranger Things, stop listening to the show. Um, I, I, don't I make was, that voice. It was legit a, better without spoilers. What a begrudging concession that was to spoiler alert. True. Uh, I, I, I wish you joy. I, 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 I normally love spoilers. I usually will go out of my way to find spoilers before I watch something. And Stranger Things was like an actual exception for me. It was so good. that it's. I think that's a testament to it. At any rate, I, I want to say two things about Stranger Things, one of which was, uh, you know, I was born in the mid to late 80s, as were you. Mm-hmm. So we did not so much live through the 80s uh, no. as we did sort of just like existed. Yeah, we were around, but we weren't Vaguely like participating. Aware. We weren't cultural movers and shakers. No, we weren't. Um, And I watched it with a, a member of Generation X who did very much live through the 80s. Mm, right. And as we were watching it, I was like, oh, I really like this show. I like all the characters. I feel like everyone's got nuance and layers, except for these like damn bullies who are so right. over the top. So like every they, they don't they don't have any outside interest. They don't ever talk about anything. All they do is like saunter around school saying things like, well, 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 who do we have here? And just like like they, 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 they just go looking for trouble. They're they like, literally tripped one of the kids. Like, I know. Stuck a it's foot like, out. have a nice trip. They were they were so ridiculous. And I was like, this is no one's ever talked like this in the history of time. This is bullshit. I, I was a kid once. We never no one ever acted this way. And my viewing companion was just like, this is 100% what everyone was like in the 80s. This is how all bullies operated. It was always just like, well, 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 who do we have here? Um, And that's so wild. I don't know that one. I was going to say, do you know anyone who was more alive in the 80s than us who can confirm this theory? I don't know anyone who was more alive in the 80s. I don't know anyone who's older than me. mom and dad were alive in the 80s, but they weren't really getting bullied. They were kind of busy with us. They were young parents. Yeah, I, the thing that uh, the Stranger Things bullies brought to mind were the bullies from the movie A Christmas Story, which was set in like the, the 1950s. 30s. Oh, 30s? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because they only had right. radio, not TV. But it was made in the 80s, I believe. It was. So it felt like that. Also, obviously, the Kiefer Sutherland bully gang in Stand By Me. 
I just like in the 80s, just like there was no nuance, apparently. No. No self-awareness. That no. was really back in the day when a bully was a bully. It, it was like apparently it was all you did. It was a bully's golden age. And they like really escalated. They went from like, oh, we're going to yell at you after school to like, I'm going to make you throw yourself into a quarry. Yeah, that was some crazy stuff. Yeah, those kids went from zero to 60. They did, but I kind of have to respect that. Like, they really stuck to the bully thing. Yeah, so this is just my request. Anyone who was, like, more aware and sentient in the 80s than I was, um, please let me know. Were you bullied? Were you a bully? Did you see bullies? And if so, did Stranger Things accurately uh, represent the 1980s bullying experience? Yeah, what was bullying culture like in the 1980s? Like, I remember, like, there were some kids who were meaner at school. I don't know that there was anybody who was like all day, every day, just like storming around the schoolyard yeah. being a jerk. And I feel like I, I feel like that would have been an experience of childhood. I would have not liked to had, but have been interested to see like someone who was just pure meanie. Yeah, I don't like nobody was mean all the time. No, even or, like the girl in my class who I thought was kind of stuck up. Like, let me use her pen once. You know? Yeah, she had depth. She had nuance. She did. These bullies don't. No, she never tried to make me throw myself off a quarry. And I've always admired her for that. But you know what they do have in common is their moms are always totally on their side. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I, I love the trope of the bully's mom. The bully's mom always 100% believes the bully. Just like, my son would never do that. And then the bully always, like, has that look on his face of, like, yeah, like, I'm hiding behind my mom. What are you going to do he about it? totally getting away with it. And his mom was probably, like, the the high school prom queen or something. She was a real piece of work. Yeah, the she female real bully. Work piece. In the wild. Yeah. Work piece. All right, so please uh, flood us with your experiences of bullying in the 80s. Mm. Okay, uh, that's it for us. Goodbye again, Laura, for real. Uh, please leave the studio and go home. Goodbye forever. I love you very much. Love you too. Bye. Thanks very much for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews extend your lifespan and help new listeners find the podcast, which means more questions and more advice. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. I'd love to answer your question. Call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds or a minute, and then send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com.